Hello and welcome to the Almost Deadly Podcast. My name is Aiden. My name is Audra. All right. I haven't done anything all weekend on my end. Sat around. <laughs> I've been playing hours of guitar, though. So well, that's that's, that's something. Well, yeah. let's. We've had we had another little short break here. Not, not mm-hmm. too stupid. It feels like we haven't recorded in forever because I had to go away again. I went to a wedding yep. in Colorado. Yep. You couldn't go, unfortunately. Your cousin got married. Um, so we had to take a little break, but now that you, and you started a new quarter, you mm-hmm. go to school all summer as well, and you started rock and roll. No more jazz. Finally. Well, one, one more jazz. jazz. One more jazz class, yeah. but mostly rock and roll. Yeah. And are you psyched? And it'll, yeah, no. So this is basically a break. It's a little break from some jazz-like music. Mm-hmm. That stuff's definitely going to come back later, for sure. To, ha- to haunt you. To haunt me, but not in a very bad way. Okay. Yeah, so I started rock and pop. Um, we have Hendrix songs, Zeppelin songs. We have all kinds of fun stuff. We played uh, Jailhouse Rock, Elvis Presley, Johnny B. Good, uh, Chuck Berry. So I've been ripping around on the guitar, getting A's left and right. Do you have bell-bottom pants my yet? Teachers. Did I what? You've been getting A's left and right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. On my assignments. Oh, right, right, right. No, I know. I know what you're reading. <laughs> Why are you laughing? I don't Mom know. thinks it's funny when I get good grades. Because <laughs> you're not typically one to get. I love you, mm-hmm. but you're very bright. But you are a you don't try very hard. Right. So I'm excited well, to see you I mean, try. Maybe in the 30s they could have met jazz better, and the 40s, in the 1930s? and the 50s, and the 60s. Wow. But it was all bad the whole time. Sorry <laughs> if you're a fan of jazz. I'm still going to rip on it <laughs> months later. Don't matter. I can't wait for the day that you have like a, you're like loving jazz and working yep. as like some like jazz musician. And then we, I can... know, I know it's going to happen to me too, okay. at least later in my life. Or I'm going to be old and like live in Florida or something <laughs> and, and just like jazz. only play jazz. And then I'm going to be like, God damn it. Like, I don't know how that happens. My mom was right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just want to mention that Nana was mentioning our UFO podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was uh, laughing and she was in almost tears because your flip-flopping was so <laughs> iconic on the episode. Oh, really? She liked <laughs> oh. From you like, you guys are stupid to like, I saw a round-headed alien coming out of a golf <laughs> cart. <laughs> okay, well, to be fair, I'm still skeptical of things, but that shit was legit. Okay. Just saying. And I flip-flopped too. I went from like, I'm all about it. I want to be in a yeah. UFO to like, you're crazy. Yeah, I so, know. <laughs> whatever. It's fun. Okay, so we have another fun, well, what we think is fun. I don't know if people right. are enjoying this or not. And then we're going to get back to some, I have been researching some Sam Cooke stuff, and I'm doing, I think our next episode will be on Snoop Dogg and Long Beach, so we'll get back to mm. some more kind of like whatever. But this week, we are going to talk about the 27 Club, Ooh. and specifically musicians. And if anybody doesn't know what the 27 Club is, it is when... Famous people, mostly actors and musicians, die untimely deaths at the age of 27, kind of like at the height of their fame. Um, yep. And we're going to cover musicians mostly. Um, <laughs> there's lore going back to like Germany, 1570. Some what? composer really? died at 27. It's like you can literally find a lot of people who died at 27 because <laughs> there's right. billions of them. Gabillions yeah, is okay. a real number. Um, at the height of their, you know, career, um, you know, we've had some notable ones. It's all about the notable ones recently, but I think the the start of it all 
what I can kind of see from is from Robert Johnson, who is the famed blues um, guitar player who, and I think the club was kind of started maybe. It was started his, when Kurt Cobain died, didn't it? I, don't I mean, like they had it, but it didn't become super popular and like with a bunch of people knowing about it until no, Kurt Cobain died when and I was, was added to it. No, because when I was growing up, there was the 27 Club and it was like Janis oh, Joplin. Really? Who we're going to talk about Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix, you know, because they died at oh, 27 okay. within like weeks of each other or whatever, which we are going to talk about. But right. I think it all started with Robert Johnson, who died at 27. And he was the blues musician out of um, Mississippi. And he yep. is known, if you know him, you don't have heard his music, he's the guitar player who famously legendarily stole like sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads and yep, he was bad at guitar yeah bad and then he everybody that knew him he disappeared for a long period of time he went to like a cross crossroads in the south somewhere the devil visited him yes to be like the greatest guitar players some crap like that and then he came back and he would like shred everybody's faces off yes he's every every guitar player's true father right so let's get into the facts <laughs> So I can Those burst facts. everyone's okay, bubble. Fine. Fine, fine, fine. <laughs> okay. So Robert Johnson was born in Mississippi, possibly May 8th, 1911, although no birth certificate can be found, which was very common at the time um, for most people. Most people weren't born in hospitals, um, and 1911 wasn't required, and his parents were also unmarried, which compounded the fact that he was, you know, didn't have a birth certificate. So, and also he was born, you know, in the Delta of Mississippi and he was an African-American baby, obviously. And so most of those were not recorded. So that's kind of a, a guess of when he was born. Um, so he might not even been 27. Just going to throw that out there. Um, much was not documented about black blues singers um, in the 20s and 30s. Johnson was more uh, more interested in music than farming when he was a kid he married very young at 18 his wife um, was 16 and she died in childbirth and her baby died as well so he had some tragedy very early on but it was also very common to marry young back then especially yeah. in that part of the country i mean could you think of a more blues start oh, to your sure. life yeah <laughs> oh my god seriously kind of um, but not really he used to hound the other um, older blues musicians for a chance to play because he obviously wasn't that good like Aiden had said in an interview which is included in the 1997 documentary can't uh, can't you hear the wind howl which is pretty good uh, notable blues singer Sunhouse said that the young Johnson would annoy the audiences with his lousy guitar playing and house said quote folks they came and say why don't you go out and Make that boy put that thing down. He's running us crazy, House said. And then he said, quote, finally he left. He run off with his mother and father, and he went over to Arkansas or some other place. That's his quote. So that's a documented person who knew him saying, like, he was bad. You know, because p historians have gone back and tried to, like, document this guy's life because it wasn't documented at the time, obviously. Not many black musicians were documented because um, people didn't give a shit, frankly. Um so when now we've gone back through these historians, they've you know found people that actually knew him to get the facts, and you know he wasn't very good. He went away for a while, he came back, and he was great. And so he wasn't gone for a long period. He was only gone for about six months. Um, and when he did come back, he was like this amazing guitar player, and that kind of started fueling the rumors that he made the deal with the devil somehow, or you know people were kind of confused. But Johnson did acknowledge at the time that he had a human teacher, not the devil. 
Um, and it was known to be a local musician whose name was Isaiah Ike. He went by Ike Zimmerman, who helped him master the guitar. And furthering the kind of legend, they used to practice in graveyards because that's where it was quietest and people wouldn't disturb them. So this master, this sudden mastering of the guitar, the playing at a graveyard, and then on top of that, his song Crossroad Blues and then a couple other songs that had the devil in them, whatever, created the famous legend of Robert Johnson selling his soul to the devil to be the greatest blues player of all time. Um, so when Johnson came back after learning the guitar and everything, he would play in street corners. Um, he was a traveling musician. He played in juke joints, mostly in Mississippi, but he did travel as north as some say um, New York and Canada at times, which was very common back then. They would just kind of pay and play, pay and play, drink and hang out, whatever, and move on. Um, it was also a very bohemian kind of lifestyle. In 1936, um, he started kind of getting a little minor recognition for his playing, and he got a chance to record in Texas. Um, and just a little bit of history on the recording back then, not a lot of blues players got to record back then. Um, and prior to the 1940s, the genre of music that they, when you know, was, you know, before was not called rhythm and blues. It wasn't really called rhythm and blues until after 1940. So before that, the African-American music was segregated into catalogs from white musicians, and it was called race music or race records. And African-Americans were rarely represented on the radio, and performances obviously were mostly to black audiences. So from the 20s and 30s, um, there wasn't a whole lot of recordings, but we do have about 15,000 titles that were released at the time as race records, and that's how most people would, you know, if they couldn't go to live performances, that's how they would hear um, African-American music. So we have about 10,000 um, blues records, uh, 3,250 of jazz, and about 1,750 of gospel music that we have from that time, which was pretty cool. Um, Johnson's landmark recordings, which there's only 29 of them, and you can find them on iTunes, which he recorded from 1936 to 1937, display a combination of his singing, guitar skills, and the songwriting talent um, that have later influenced a ton of musicians, notably Eric Clapton, like, loved Robert Johnson. He rec reportedly recorded these songs facing the corner of the wall, and a lot of people thought it was because he was shy, and people that did know him were like, he was not shy, you know. Um, he did that because of these race recordings where he would learn to play by ear. He was, he knew how to play by ear, which is why he picked up the guitar so quickly, as I'm sure you can relate to. Mm -hmm. And um, by learning these recordings and hearing how they were recorded, he knew that facing the corner of the wall gave him a certain acoustic sound. So that's why when he went to the recording studio, he turned around and faced the corner. And that kind of gave him a really cool sound on his recordings, which people still kind of gravitate it's like the really eerie like howly yes. vocals that and that's has. what yeah. kind of people gravitate towards today so those recordings won a grammy and actually in 1991 for best historical album so johnson traveled as i said all over the delta and up to new york and possibly canada seducing women along the way for a place to stay he died on august 16th 1938 in greenwood mississippi many rumors about how he there were many rumors about how he died um, some people thought he was stabbed to death. Some people uh, said he was poisoned. Um, some people said he was struck by lightning. I mean, it was this whole crazy thing. And because he was only minorly known and he was traveling so much, um, you know, that's where all these rumors kind of come about because 
nobody's going to put in the newspaper that some unknown blues musician who's traveling everywhere died. You know, it's not going to be the paper or anything. Um, but most people suspect he was poisoned by a bartender who thought Johnson was hitting on his wife. Um, he was reportedly very, very good looking. There's a lot of people in these documentaries. The women talk about how good looking he was. And he was so great at the guitar. Um, and some people think he might have gotten bad moonshine because Mississippi was a dry state. You couldn't just go into a bar and get a, like a, a good whiskey. It was like hit or miss what you got kind of from the bartenders. Um, and some people, because of this death certificate that might have been floating around, which I don't think he had. I don't know. This is kind of one of those rumors. think he died of syphilis because um, of all the womanizing he did. Regardless of how it happened, he was sick for three days with no medical care. Um, and there are three churches outside of Greenwood that claim to have the real Robert Johnson gravesite. So nobody really knows where he, he was buried. You know, he didn't have any money. So he didn't have any money for a burial. So what they've kind of concluded and what is kind of the well-known thought now is that he's buried under this pecan tree in a churchyard somewhere in, in uh, Greenwood. Because he wouldn't have had money for a burial, they would have just kind of taken him to the closest place and buried him there. So the legends of the crossroads for most African-Americans starts in Africa, obviously, specifically the country of Benin, Nigeria, and Togo. So over there, back then, it was called uh, Legba, I believe, and I'm probably butchering that. And he is viewed, so he would, we kind of turn that into our Satan or devil. So over there, it's Legba, and he is viewed as like a young, viral, like virile trickster deity. He's often horned and phallic, and he um, and his shrine is usually located at the gate of the village in the countryside. And so that was brought over by slaves and then into the south through the Haitian culture, voodoo culture, and they call him Papa Legba down in the south in the, in the Haitian voodoo um, communities. And he's kind of like the go-between between humanity and the spirit world. So the spiritual crossroads, hence the crossroads. And he either gives permission or denies humans to speak to spirits. And he can speak all languages and this whole thing. So that's kind of where the legend comes from of this crossroads. So him writing about that isn't because he made the deal. It's because it was it's very much steeped in the culture that he grew up in. You know, it's the mean? most important part. What? He's commonly associated with dogs. Yes. And Robert Johnson has the Hellhound on my trail song. So after you make the pact with the devil at the crossroads, they come in, yes. you're cho chased by hellhounds for the rest of your life and you live a short life usually. And he has all these lyrics about getting chased by these dogs, blah, blah, blah. And then yep. leaves trembling, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Well, there's an episode of the show in Supernatural, which I got addicted to about six years ago. And there's a guy who's supposed to be Robert Johnson and he gets chased down by hellhounds. I remember that episode. Did you watch Supernatural? Yeah. Well, oh. you started watching it, and then I watched it, the whole thing. Oh my god, I'm Except 16. For, like, <laughs> I know. Right. No, that was a good show. I like it that was show. a good show. But, but then it got, too, that, it got a little too crazy. For it me did get crazy, and I stopped like, watching. It, I didn't know what was going on. That's where that comes from. From that episode, yes, the Hellhound dogs come and get him, and he has a song called Hellhound. So now I'm going to okay. play. Okay. What are you going to say? You have more to say? What? Do you, no. What are you going to play? I'm going to play. Uh, Robert Johnson's Me and the Devil Blues, mm. which is another thing furthering. So, you know what? Maybe he did sell his soul to the devil. I don't know. Yeah. He's very good looking, charismatic, 
and play the guitar like a mofo. So here we go. Here's me and the Devil Blues, Robert Johnson. That's me. Mom, you just described me. Thank you. There you go. That's Robert and the Devil walking side by side. Yeah. A lot of people thought he had uh, two guitars on his uh, recordings, mm-hmm. but he had this like good rhythm thing going where he would play like the rhythm part, and then he'd play his little higher part at the same time. So oh, it yeah? sounds like there's a bunch of stuff going on if you listen to certain songs, oh, but that's cool. it's just him. He's really good. Right there. there you go. He learned that all in six months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in well. a graveyard. From the okay. Devil. From the Devil. So there you go. That is the okay, legend. Okay, so who's this next guy? So Jesse Belvin. I went down a major rat rabbit hole. I was going to say rat hole. Rabbit hole, rat hole, whatever, right. today. So I feel really badly for this guy. And <laughs> I, I don't know why I personally take this on myself where I have to fix the internet for these people. But there's a lot of misinformation on the internet about Jesse Belvin. So if you Google him, literally everything's wrong. Wikipedia is wrong. Uh, a rolling a bunch of rolling stone articles are wrong and there's a netflix um documentary uh about sam cook actually that they mentioned jesse belvin and they have it wrong in there so um and it's about the circumstances of his death and then he was kind of largely forgotten in a sense um and so here let me tell you about him he if you've ever heard of earth angel he famously wrote that song, so that's oh, one of his most favorite songs. Earth really? Angel. Yes. I thought Elvis sung that. He probably did. He covered it, but he wrote it. Uh, so uh, Jesse Belvin was born December fifteenth, nineteen thirty-two, in Texas, and which, ironically, a lot of these people come from the South, moved to California, LA, and then die young. So I'm just throwing that out there that the devil clearly lives in the South. Good thing I was born in California. <laughs> so. He moved to California at the age of seven. Wikipedia says five. Every other wet place else says five. His um, and a, a lot of this information that I took from I to to get the facts are from newspaper archives, um, Ancestry.com, and uh, Jesse Belvin's son, whose name is Jesse Belvin Jr. And he has a four-part interview on YouTube that you can look up. Um, that kind of you know if you listen to the whole thing he it's not a great interview but it kind of takes care of some of this misinformation that's out there um so he moved he moved to california when he was seven it says he moved right to los angeles but i found in records that they actually moved to um the oakland area for a while and then they must have moved down to los angeles at, at, at one point he was a very gifted songwriter from the get-go so in this youtube interview with um jesse belvin jr um he was four when his dad died um, so a lot of his 
memories are from his grandmother, um, Jesse Belvin Sr.'s mom, ended up raising the two kids um, that were very little after Jesse died and telling him stories about his dad. And so one of the stories was that he would write songs very quickly. Like he'd go pick up milk at the corner store and come back with like four songs in his head and then write them down. And they were very poor. They grew up in poverty. And when he got a little bit older and he could sell his songs, um, one of the stories was their stove broke down and he went up to his room, busted out a song, um, took like the train up to Hollywood and sold the song and came back, bought a new stove that day and brought it home. What? And it was just simply because they needed money. So a lot of the information that you'll read about him on the internet is like, oh, he got screwed over. He sold his songs for mere dollars. You know, they took advantage of him, which did happen back then because a lot of people took advantage of black artists. That's very well known. But at a necessity, he needed sometimes to sell his songs quickly. So he would bust out songs because it was easy for him and just to get money so they could eat or get a stove or whatever it was. And they didn't feel like at the time that they were getting taken advantage of then. You know, that was like a necessity before he kind of got some fame and notoriety. Um, so he wrote, he went to the army at one point and that's when he wrote Earth Angel. Um, he wasn't really singing his own stuff very often. And if he did, he, he was kind of bouncing around from different groups. He was kind of nomadic with groups and, and so he wrote Earth Angel and the Penguins has the famous recording of it. And that's the one that kind of became the hit and was on the Billboard charts. And it also became one of the first crossovers from an African-American artist into the pop charts, like the white pop charts, selling like millions of copies. So he bounced around to different labels and he sang under different names, um, basically just trying to make money. And he was with uh, numerous groups. And he wrote many songs, um, and as I said, he was taken advantage of here and there, you know, but he didn't mind at some point. And then he met his wife, and she was a notable songwriter as well, and his, her name was Joanne. And she finally kind of took him under her wing and became his manager and took over the career. And that's when he kind of started getting streamlined, and, and she kind of took over and made everything kind of happen for him. So he... Um, he got finally started getting some recognition and traveling with a bunch of people across the country. And as he was going into the South, um, he was going to a Little Rock, Arkansas um, concert um, that he played. And he wasn't the lead, um, like the, the headliner, but he was kind of lower on the billing. And they played the concert and he got in a car accident and him and his wife died. Mm. That's the short story. Um, so there's a lot of legend around the car accident where um, that I'm going to go into. So the, the legend, I'm going to tell you the legend, then I'm going to tell you kind of the reality of what actually happened because the legend is all over the internet and it's not true. And there's one guy kind of fueling this whole thing because he keeps starting these blogs. Um, so the legend goes, Jesse was this new up and coming artist and he was touted as the next Nat King Cole. And he was on a, a, a record label that was competing with Capitol Records. So we, in our, back in our Nat King Cole Capitol Records episode, you know, we talked about Nat King Cole. Mm -hmm. And Jesse sounds very similar to Nat King Cole. So he was kind of going to be the Nat King Cole rival. So everybody had a lot of stake in him at this point when he was doing this tour down the South. Um, and he was going to play, supposedly play the first integrated concert in Little Rock, Arkansas, meaning it was going to be an audience full of mixed black and white. So black and white sitting together. Normally during concerts, 
there were two ways that they went about it. Either the whites would sit in a section and the blacks would sit in a section. So the whites would sit up on top looking down on the blacks or you would have a black concert first. They would leave and then the white con- like white concert goers would come in. Okay. So that's how they would kind of do it depending on the, the venue. Um, and so supposedly during this integrated concert, there's a couple different versions. He was getting death threats the week before while he was visiting family in Arkansas because that's where he grew up or he was born and had family there. Um, and then during the concert, uh, riots broke out or there was disturbances because they were yelling at each other. Black concert goers and white concert goers were yelling at each other. Um, some say the concert didn't happen and a mob broke out and like ran him out of town. Some say the concert was cut short because they were ran out of town. Um, and then some say, which is the most common thing, was after the show when they were leaving, a white angry mob with guns ran him out of town, slashed his tires, and in their haste, they took off from their car and shortly down the street, the tire blew and they hit, they hit another car head on that was coming in the opposite direction and everybody died. Okay. So that's the legend of this white mob running him out of town, his car getting sla- tire slashed, um, and then everybody dying and, and, you know, this whole thing. Basically, none of that happened. So the reality is, you know, he was in town visiting family and was kind of around doing um, rehearsals and stuff. Um, but there was, n- according to family members he was visiting, they didn't really mention any... Um, threats at all i'm sure there was racial slurs thrown at them or just day-to-day stuff that they probably dealt with but nothing significant that anybody remembers um even the misinformation about his type of car uh one of the cousins that spoke later on um the car that they died in they keep saying is a black cadillac all over the internet it was actually like a seafoam green cadillac because the cousin got to drive it um a couple days before the accident happened and he was young at the time. He was like a teenager, so he was excited. So they even had the color of the car wrong. Um, so they go to play the concert, which actually was not integrated. So the concert was held at the Joe T. Robinson Auditorium, and it was on February 6th, 1961. And it was billed at starting at 7.50 p.m., which I think is a very strange time to start a concert. And it was not integrated. Little Rock didn't have its very first integrated concert until 1965, which is when the desegregation laws happened and were passed, okay? So logically, at Little Rock of all places would not integrate a concert before they legally had to integrate a concert, especially down there. Right. I could see in the north, but Little Rock, which was the heart of many marches and riots and KKK, and you know, they're not going to integrate a concert just for the hell of it because, you know, whatever. So logically, that didn't happen. Uh, the concert played with zero incidents. There's nothing in the paper about incidents. There's no uh, concert goers. Later on, they were interviewed that had an incident. There was nothing happened. Um, so everything went fine. And um, they left the concert. And th- the accident didn't happen until the next morning at around 7 o'clock. Okay? And it, they were only an hour and 40 minutes away, roughly, from the concert they left to where the accident was. They were traveling from uh, Little Rock to Fort Worth, Texas, which is a five-hour drive, and the accident happened in Hope, Arkansas, which is about an hour and 40, 45 minutes out of Little Rock in the morning. So they either finished the concert, 
maybe stayed somewhere for a few hours to get some sleep, as we know they wouldn't be allowed to stay in a white establishment, so they probably stayed at like a black motel somewhere, or they maybe stayed up and partied and hung out somewhere with family or whatever and then left. Um, But regardless, uh, they swerved into another lane um, and hit another car head on, and that car that they hit immediately burst into flames. Um, Charles Ford, who was driving Belvin's car and, and was in his band, died instantly as well as Jesse Belvin died instantly at the scene. Belvin's wife and who was also his manager, as I said, Joanne and Belvin's guitar player, whose name was Kirk Davis were in critical condition and sent immediately to the hospital. Um, in the other car that burst into flames, um, were a well-known deep sea diver, uh, and his wife and his name was Max Green Knoll and I think his wife's name was Eleanor which I had a hard time kind of finding her name and they died instantly as well she was pulled from the car um, but the car was so badly in flames that they couldn't get him out of the car but they were both dead at the scene Max um, was internationally known and held many deep seeding diving records he actually was a ship wreckage recovery expert and did stuff off Nantucket and Lake Michigan all these places so he was, that was a big story that he was also killed as well. And they were from Wisconsin. So it was all over the country about this wreck. It wasn't just about Jesse Belvin. It was this famous, like, white couple that died as well. Um, and even in, like, the Wisconsin papers, there was no mention of any incident at the concert or any kind of police investigation into, like, mobs or anything like that or any tampering with the tires. Joanne died six days later. Um And Kirk Davis, who ended up being the only survivor, spent weeks in the hospital and had, like, horrendous injuries um, and was in, like, rehab for a very long time. The highway that they were on is is U.S. Highway 67 in Miller County, and it's designated now as the Rock and Roll Highway 67, honoring the pioneers of rock who traveled that highway. So that was the main kind of highway from, like, Memphis, Little Rock, into Texas and stuff where people played venues. Um, The show was touted as the first rock and roll show of 1960. So I don't know if the the billing name of that concert led people to believe it was integrated or maybe it was bigger than it needed to be or whatever. Um, and Jesse Belvin wasn't even actually, as I said, one of the main people. Um, but Jackie Wilson was. Jackie Wilson was the headliner that that show. He actually took off before Jesse Belvin's car. They were all kind of caravanning to Fort Worth together. Um, and that's how people knew about the, the the accident, you know, six miles outside of Hope, Arkansas, is because there was a, a car trailing um, with other band members trailing Jesse Belvin's car and saw the flames go up and the glow in the distance. Um, so Jackie Wilson got to Dallas before everybody else, and then Jesse Belvin never showed up. Um, and he ended up being the one to kind of tell everybody what happened once he found out about the deaths and the car accident and stuff. And he was kind of a character in himself. He was in and out of jail. Um, His kids had drug problems. He was kind of a known liar and kind of um, not a great guy. It sounded like he was kind of abusive and a womanizer. And um, so I think a lot of the myth around the accident kind of came from Jackie because he came back and said that his tires were slashed, um, but no one could kind of um, verify that. 
so that might be where the idea that Jesse's car's tires were slashed and the, and the damage, um, but Jackie was the one that said it was his car. So that might be where that lie kind of came from. But Etta James, who was the renowned singer, in her book Rage, called Rage to Survive, she admits in that book um, that everyone in the car had fallen asleep, which makes the most sense. So the reality is everybody was probably tired or had been drinking and tired, and they were traveling to the next venue, and they all just fell asleep. And she said that Charles was driving. Jesse and Joanne were in the front seat because, you know, those cars, those big DeVilles had those big, you know, kind of couch seats in the front, you know. Um, and that's why they all died because they were all in the front seat, those three. And then Kirk Davis was asleep in the back seat, and that's why he didn't um, die. He had a lot of injuries but didn't pass away. Um, so that's kind of where I went with that. So Jesse left behind, Jesse and Joanne left behind two orphan sons, Jesse Jr., who was four at the time of the accident, and Jonathan, who was 18 months, and they were raised by their grandmother, Selena. Now, what I found interesting, to go along with the fact that this, like, crazy mob thing didn't happen, um, is that I found an article, a little brief article, in the Hope, Arkansas paper on, um, in January of 1961, there was a civil suit filed by Gordon Hecker and James Pet Petrie versus Selena Belvin, Jesse's mother, who was the administrator of Jesse's estate at the time, and they were suing Jesse's estate for $101,000, $101,500, which is a ton of money in the 60s. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't find any follow-up on this. I don't know if it was dropped. I don't know if Selena had to pay that. Um, from the YouTube interviews of Jesse Belvin Jr., he doesn't mention it all. And he also, in that interview, mentions that the car accident was, was an accident, not like malicious or murder or anything like that. So that also leads, that civil suit also leads me to believe that someone was suing Jesse Belvin's estate because they were ultimately responsible for the accident. So if they fell asleep and swerved into oncoming traffic, they're at fault, right? Um, and that's a, a boatload of money. So I'm assuming it's because two people died and they left behind a family and kids as well. So that kind of leads me to believe that obviously it was a falling asleep at the, at the wheel kind of issue. So that's the rabbit hole I went down today. Jesus. <laughs> and All right. and uh, clearing up Jesse Belvin's uh, mystery death, which is not a mystery. It was a very tragic accident. Yeah. So I'm going to play a song um, that actually Jesse Belvin sang because Earth Angel, um, I don't really have any recordings of him singing that. I'm sure there's something out there, but I thought it would be kind of nice to play a song called Guess Who, which actually became really popular and was written by his wife, Joanne, for him to sing um, because they died together, which I think is very sad. So this is the song Guess Who, sung by Jesse Belvin, written by Joanne.
There you go. He sounds like Nat King Cole. Pretty stuff. Yep. Whew, okay. That took all right, a lot so of money. we are already 40 minutes in almost, and we have all the most important people to talk about still. <laughs> so I think, I think we should do Wait. two parts. Okay. Well, let's get through. Hendrix? G- yeah. I feel we're only 40 minutes in. Or we <laughs> we're can, only or 40 we minutes can, in. Or we can knock what? it out. We can knock it out. People can listen more than an hour. We're good. We're good. No, I know, but we have we've only gone over two people, and then we have all the most important people. This twenty seven club. So I don't want to just like brush over them. I'd rather I'd rather spend more time on Hendrix and Kurt Cobain and everybody well, I'm else. I'm not going to talk about Kurt Cobain because we okay, talked well, about him. Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Mia, Amy Winehouse. Okay, well let's let's do Hendrix. Okay, and then we'll okay. see what timestamp we're at. Perfect. <laughs> we're not going to cut that either we're just going to argue on a no that wasn't planning everybody can listen to that <laughs> this okay. is my this is my favorite 27 club member your, other than your, Kurt Cobain. your favorite 27 year old death so my my second favorite okay so Jimi hendrix woo woo, um was born johnny allen hendrix james yep. marshall hendrix Johnny Allen. How many names does he have? I don't know. A lot, though. Okay. Well, he had numerous names. On November 27th, 1942, um, he was a rock guitar player, backwards, tongue, all that, singer, songwriter. Um, his mainstream career only lasted four years, which is yep. crazy town. And he's widely regarded as one of the most influential guitarists in history and the, one of the most celebrated. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he's described as the greatest instrumentalist in the history of rock music. Um, he was born in Seattle, ironically. I don't know why that's ironic, but it is. He began playing guitar at age 15, and in 1961, he enlisted in the Army and trained as a paratrooper in the 101st Airborne Division, which is cool, and was discharged the next year. And where he moved to Tennessee, and he started playing with um, a band called the Chitlin Circuit, and he played with the Isley Brothers as a backing band, mm-hmm. and later with Little Richard, which I think is really cool. Um, the experience of that must have been insane. Yep. He moved to England in the uh, late 1966 and was discovered by Linda Keith, and um, she became his manager. And within months, he started earning, like, top 10 hits um, with the Jimi Hendrix, Jimi Hendrix experience in the UK. So, Hey Joe, Purple Haze, The Wind Cries Mary, all that amazing stuff. And he achieved the U.S. fame after his performance at the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967. I think we've mentioned it a few times on earlier episodes. Mm-hmm. Um his third and final studio album, Electric Ladyland, reached uh, is the only one that went to number one, and he was the world's highest paid performer when he headlined at Woodstock in 1969 and the Isle uh, of Wright Festival in 1970. So he was renting a house in Benedict Canyon at one point in 1969, so that's his kind of um, L.A. tie. And that... I thought this was an interesting story about him because a lot of people said that he was a horrible, horrible, like drunk, horrible drug addict. Mm-mm. He was violent. Are you? You don't want to see? You don't want to hear that part of him? No, no. I, I was just gonna say I just watched a, a video of Buddy Guy and BB King talking about when they 
met Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. And BB uh, King said that when he met Jimi Hendrix, he was playing with Little Richard. So that would have been right before his uh, mm-hmm. solo career. And that mm-hmm. he was he wasn't drinking or smoking or doing anything. Yeah. Like he was basically sober. Right. And 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 sorry, you said Hendrix was renting a house in Benedict County, California that was burglarized. Burglarized. Right. Burglarized. I just I was watching a John Mayer video while I was sitting here waiting for you to call me about Mm -hmm. John Mayer's house being burglarized like two years ago or something in Benedict Canyon. What? Burglarized? (laughs) Burglarized? Hamburglarized? No. So John Mayer bought a house from... uh, Jimi Hendrix? Wouldn't that be (sighs) ironic? Yeah, then I would buy that. That would buy that house the second I could. That's the word of the day. I, my, my word of the day Bugalized. is... <laughs> John Mayer's house was burglarized. <laughs> um, so John Mayer bought that house from... What's the... What's the guy from Maroon 5? Adam Levine? Yeah, he bought a ha- the house from that guy. So I guess and that's And it just weird. got broken into? No, like a year ago or two years ago. Oh. But okay. I was looking up... Because I was looking up John Mayer moved to Montana to like mm-hmm. get away from obs- LA or whatever. obsessed with John Mayer. Yeah, yeah I love John Mayer. Um, and then I was just reading up, up on his Montana house and like why he did that and stuff because I mm-hmm. had never researched it before. And then I went to like just oh what h- houses has John Mayer like huh. or had because I like houses and th- that was what I was reading about. Oh, anyway, cool. continue. well, so because that burglary, which obviously set him off um, in a crazy way, he later on when he was like under the influence of numerous drugs and alcohol, he punched his friend Paul Caruso and accused him of the theft. Um, he then chased Caruso away uh, from the house by throwing stones at him and basically freaked out at him. A few days later, Hendrick's girlfriend, Carmen uh, Borreo, Barrero, Barrero uh, required stitches. <laughs> Carmen Burrito? Uh, Carmen. Carmen Burrito got burglarized. <laughs> Hamburglarized. <laughs> uh, she required stitches after he hit her above the eye with a vodka bottle during a drunken, jealous rage. So, Well, that sucks. Hey, hey man. Take a chill pill. Where's the yep. val- Where's the Or don't in the take 60s? a chill pill. <laughs> or, <laughs> or, or take just, no pills. Or just take a breath. Yeah. Um. Okay. So once again, there are de- details de- disputing his last days and death. Um. So here's kind of like the rundown. He spent uh, September seventeenth, nineteen seventy, with Monica Daneman in London which is the only witness to his final hours. Daneman said that she prepared a meal for them at her apartment, um, which was at the Samarkand Hotel. <laughs> Good job. So many syllables. Samarkand. Samarkand Hotel around 11 p.m. Who eats at 11 p.m.? I guess that's very English. I don't know. European. I don't know what I'm saying. Around 11 p.m. Um, when they shared a bottle of wine. And she drove him to the residence of an acquaintance at approximately 1.45 a.m., which I'm sure nothing weird happened there at 1.45 in the morning. Mm. Also, which is a very specific time, um, and also obviously for no good reason, where he remained for about an hour before she picked him up and drove back to their apartment at 3 a.m. So clearly they ate dinner, had a bottle of wine. He went and picked up drugs, and they went back to the house. Well... Hello. Drugs or 15 girls at some random apartment, 1 45 a.m. So why would his girlfriend drop him off with 15 girls? Is that his girlfriend? Yes. Oh. Why would his girlfriend take him to pick up drugs, though, too? Because they're drug addicts. That's not cool, man. Yeah. This makes me sad. Hello. 
do, have you not heard the podcast? Um, <laughs> so she said that they talked until around 7 a.m. and went to sleep. And she woke up around 11 and found Hendrix breathing but unconscious and unresponsive. She called an ambulance at 11.18, which arrived at 11.27. Paramedics then transported Hendrix to St. Mary's Abbott's Hospital, where he was pronounced dead at 12.45 on September 18th. So the coroner during the postmortem examination um, said that he had aspirated on his own vomit and died of asphyxiation while intoxicated with barbiturates. So he clearly went and bought a bunch of drugs, came back. They were drinking. He drank, he, you know, he took too much, whatever, and he died and he threw up in his sleep, which sucks. So he was either on his back or whatever, sleeping and died. And hopefully he, and he choked. Um, so... It says, quote, citing insufficient evidence of the circumstances, um, the coroner also declared it an open verdict, which I don't really understand what that means. Anyway, she later finally admitted, um, after kind of being very vague initially, that he had taken nine of her prescription Vesperexes, which are sleeping tablets, um, which is the eight, which is 18 times the recommended dosage. That's a little bit too much. Yeah. So I had never heard of this drug before. I looked it up. This drug is actually withdrawn and banned from most countries now. It's so mm. lethal. So he was taking something that was extremely powerful and not good. Um, so he's most associated with his known for playing his Fender, Fender Strat- Stratocaster, which isn't that what you have? Yeah, I have a Strat. Okay. Um. He acquired his first one in 1966 when a girlfriend loaned him enough money to purchase it. And it was a used one that was built around 1964. Um, He, after that, only used that one during performances and recordings. In 1967, he described the instrument as, quote, the best all-around guitar for the stuff we're doing, end quote. He praised its, quote, bright treble and deep bass sounds. I thought I specifically put that in there for you. All right. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. One of his signature effects is the wah-wah pedal, um, which is first heard uh, in the electric guitar in the cre- in Cream's um, song, Tales of Brave Ulysses, released in May 1967. You heard that song? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I definitely uh, heard and I specifically put cream song. that in because I remember going with you to buy a Wawa pedal. Yeah, in Las saying, Vegas. He's saying I have to have this because Jimi Hendrix had one. Yep, and we bought the whatever Hendrix Wawa pedal, like the regular Crybaby. Crybaby, that's pedal. right, Crybaby yeah. Wawa. So there that you thing go. That is sick. So that's the death of Jimi Hendrix. So that was pretty straightforward, and yep. sad. You buy yeah. a bunch of drugs, lay down vomit die so don't do drugs don't Uh lay down on your back yep um don't fall asleep after you've done a bunch of stuff so aiden's going to play for us now um his one of his hendrix songs that he loves called spanish castle magic correct after spotify loads i will definitely play that song for all of you (laughs) why are you on spotify it's better you want me to find it i got it got it Thank you. 
I'm going to play Voodoo Child so you can hear the wah-wah pedal in the beginning. Okay. Sorry, I played a lot of that. That is good stuff. <laughs> that is good stuff. Yeah. Okay. So, should we move on to Janice Joplin, or should we take a break and do part two? No, let's do Janice. Okay. We are under an hour, so we're chilling. Okay, we're good. I think we can power through this, because we're professional podcasters. Professional adults. So, I'm about to talk about Janice Joplin. She died... I want to say like six weeks after Hendrix. Can you look that up while I start this? Mm-hmm. So everybody's like reeling off this Jimi Hendrix death, 27 years old, and then Janis Joplin dies. Okay, so Janis was born in Texas, again, Texas, January 19th, 1943. She did not have a great childhood. Um, it was painful reading about her childhood. She was bullied horrendously. She was different. She was a little overweight. She had acne. Um, I think even then she was kind of struggling with her sexual identity, probably not even knowing it, but that made her seem a little different because obviously she was in a very conservative um, Texas area at the time. And she seemed a little bohemian hippie, you know, in Texas before that was kind of even a thing as a child. So she found kind of a group of misfit friends who listened to Bessie Smith Ma Rainey, and that influenced Janice to sing and influenced her style in a big way. Um, when she went to college, the paper, she was so different that they wrote an article about her, and the article was called, quote, She Dares to Be Different. And basically because she was barefoot and always sang, they mm-hmm. decided to write an article about her, which I think is super weird. Cool. All right. <laughs> yeah. By um, the way, uh, she died like two and a half weeks after Hendrix. Two, yeah, it was very. I thought it was very quickly. Two and a half weeks after. Yeah. yeah. So, to get out of Texas, I mean, she tried to do the right thing. Her parents desperately wanted her to have like this normal kind of um, life, and by all accounts, they were trying to help her, and she just did not fit in there. So she took off. She went to San Francisco, um, and she was trying to be a musician, and she met a bunch of the guys with the doors and all these people that were kind of up and coming in the, in the movement up there in the sixties in San Francisco at Hayden Ashbury. And she started doing major, major drugs. Um, and she started dating this woman, um, 
Peggy Castera, who owned a store, a really popular clothing store at Haight and Ashbury, and they had a long-term off-and-on relationships um, throughout her life, and up until the day she died, basically, she was kind of off-and-on with Peggy. She also had relationships with men, um, but she, her drug addiction got so bad in San Francisco that people were worried about her, and they basically had to babysit her, and she just had to get out of there, so she, she was making some music up there, and she was she was having a really hard time and she was struggling and they were worried that she was going to die. So she moved back home to Texas for a bit and her mom brought her to a therapist and she straightened out and she got cleaned up and she was dating some guy and she was trying to do the right thing, but it just ultimately wasn't who she was and she just had to leave. So eventually she ended up in LA and she started writing music and getting a name for herself and, and, um, and her, her whole style that seemed weird and kooky growing up became like, the cool thing you know her bare feet her dance style her long hair you know her hippie clothes all became like a whole movement that people embodied and and you know recreated even like when I was in high school everyone wanted to to dress like and be like Janis Joplin um which hopefully she if she was here she'd get a kick out of today um so she got semi-famous and she started touring but she was always struggling with her alcohol um, addiction, her drug addiction. She was doing heroin. Um, there are many accounts of her um, slipping on stage, not kind of being present, slurring words, um, and her relationships were kind of toxic. Um, so on one of her, which I, I thought was a sad kind of um, story about her, one of her last public appearances before her death um, was on the Dick Cavett show. And in on January or sorry June twenty fifth nineteen seventy appearance appearance she announced that she was going to go to her ten year high school class reunion, um, which I went no I went to my twenty, um, and when he asked her if she was popular in high school she admitted that she uh, was not and she said she was quote they laughed me out of class out of town and out of the state, which is kind of sad. And then she admitted also that when she was at University of Texas in Austin, um, that she had been voted by one of the frat uh, fraternity fraternity houses. She was voted ugliest man on campus, which is horribly mean. Well, okay. That sucks. <laughs> yes. Jesus. So she, um, the last couple of days or last weeks of her life, she was in L.A. recording um, an album. And she was staying at the landmark inn or motor inn which it was called at the time today it's called the highland gardens hotel um and the landmark hotel was designed specifically for entertainers it was built around um an area where there was a lot of studios so they wanted uh hollywood celebrities and musicians to stay there specifically to record and be close to where they were going to be and so they also had a you know, a bunch of drug dealers that catered to the hotel. So it was kind of a shady operation, but very easy for the people staying there, specifically the musicians, to have drug dealers that would come right up to their hotel rooms or they would meet in the parking lot and get drugs. Um, it was kind of a whole thing and, and what the hotel was known for. They opened its doors in the mid-50s, um, and it had classic post and beam architecture. It's still there today. Jim Morrison actually stayed there as well, and they both have rooms there. There's a Jim Morrison room and there's a Janis Joplin room, and Janis actually died in this hotel, so you can actually stay in the room that she died in. Oh, wow. 
Um, but she, so what happened with her was she was dating a man at the time who was younger than her and he was kind of taking advantage of her by all accounts. Um, and she had built a home up North to kind of get out of the LA scene. And he, they were renovating her house and he was staying at the house while she was down in LA recording. Um, and at one point he had met her ex Peggy and they had agreed to have like a threesome at some point the night, um, that, that she, or the night before the night she died, they were supposed to all three meet up, but she had been clean for a while before this album started recording. And she had been estranged from Peggy for a while. Cause I said they had a toxic relationship so the timeline of what kind of people assume happened was that somehow she either found out Peggy was in town <clears throat> or ran into her. Most people say that um, it was through the drug dealer they had. They used the same drug dealer. And so they think that um, Janice's drug dealer told her, hey, Peggy's in town. And so Peggy and her met up, and which her record execs told her not to do because they knew that she was a bad influence and wanted her to stay away from her. Um, but they did meet up, and at that point, the guy that she was dating at the time met Peggy as well. They agreed to have this, like, threesome. They were going to meet up on this certain day a couple days later. Um, and then they all kind of went their separate ways. Janice kept recording. Um, and then the day came and went that they were supposed to meet up, and everybody kind of blew her off. And they think that that kind of set her up, that her boyfriend and her ex-girlfriend like both blew her off. So she got upset. She went out, bought more heroin and went back to her room and basically OD'd. Uh, so she would ha she ended up missing her 6 p.m. studio session that day. And somebody from the record company went over to the hotel and stopped by and basically had them break down the door. And she sadly was uh, wedged between the nightstand and the bed and she had hit her head, so her head was kind of broken open. And in one hand, she had a pack of cigarettes, and in her other hand, she had a bunch of change. So what people kind of surmised was she went out to the vending machine that was in close to the hotel to buy cigarettes, and she came back to the room with her change and her pack of cigarettes, and she either tripped because she was so screwed up and hit her head and died, or she, like, OD'd and, like, fell and hit her head as she was, like, into the room or laying on the bed and rolled over and hit her head or whatever. Um, so it was kind of a horrific scene kind of seeing her like that. And that's the room that you can rent out now and, and go stay in, which I think mm. is kind of gross. And there's graffiti. So there's all this um, graffiti in the closet in that room. So when you stay there, I'll put a picture up on Instagram. People can go in and write on markers, you know, about, tributes to her they leave southern comfort for her which was her favorite drink um do they put pictures of her up there and of that hotel david crosby who is our longtime la historian guru that comes up in almost every podcast um <laughs> said about that hotel um and the appeal to that hotel for musicians was quote the convenience of being close to the street dealers who weren't welcomed by the sheriff's deputies in beverly hills and police um, but we're welcome at the hotel. Mm -hmm. So that is Janis Joplin, dead, 27. Again, Rip. heroin, drug overdose, 
So should we keep going? Jim Morrison. Jim yes. Morrison was born um, December 8th, 1943 in Florida to a very military family. His father actually uh, was a commander of a carrier division of the United States fleet during the Gulf of uh, Tonkin incident, which resulted in the U.S. U.S.'s rapid escalation of the Vietnam War, um, which is counter to the Jim Morrison hippie anti-war lifestyle that he had. So that must have been very hard for him. Um, by all accounts, Jim was a very sensitive child growing up. There's one story where him and his family were driving down the street, and they um, came across, I think it was in Arizona. They were on vacation, and they passed a car accident that was on an Indian reservation, apparently. And according to the the his siblings and his parents, there was just, like, injured people on the side of the road, and they just kept going. But Jim, being so sensitive... In his head, he saw, like, dead Indians all over the highway, and nobody was doing with anything. So in his mind, it, like, became in this exaggerated, traumatizing thing where the rest of the family saw, like, a bad car accident but didn't think much of it. But it impacted yeah. him to the point where he wrote about it multiple times in his lyrics. So you'll hear references of, you know car accidents or death or whatever it is but somewhere there's like references to this horrible accident because he was such a sensitive person um and he was a poet and he was very literary and, and a lot of the um you know stuff that he wrote about uh was you know kind of poetry that he wrote before he became in a band so he ended up moving to california because he went to ucla film school and he did great there and he graduated the film degree and he after that, went to Venice Beach and had this very bohemian lifestyle, which was in 1964, right in the middle of the whole, like, 60s movement and stuff. And that's where he started, again, what I said, he started writing a bunch of his lyrics that he would sing in the doors. Um, and as he kind of, you know, went to the doors, uh, which kind of emerged in L.A. at the time, they got their name from this book. Um, Aldous Huxley's book The Door Perception which is a reference to unlocking the doors of perception through psychedelic drugs which I never knew where they got the name but that's where it was and he was obviously doing a lot of psychedelic drugs so it all makes sense so the door is opening to this you know from psychedelic drugs your brain is opening your mind is opening like a door Um, so that's where the name comes from so when he kind of got really famous um he stopped communicating with his family and at one point in a lot of articles you'll read he'll say that he his whole family died or he has no family or he's like an only child and his parents died so he basically like writes off his whole family (laughs) such a weird guy like such (laughs) a weird guy yeah he claims like his parents and siblings are all all dead yeah um or that you know and which is not true they were all very much alive but because his parents were so strict and so military um and somewhere I wrote in here, oh, the reason why he stopped talking to them is because he was very different, obviously. But so because being a military family, they instilled discipline and levied punishment by a military tradition known as dressing down. So they would instead of like they wouldn't beat the kids. So I guess they thought they were doing something right. But they would yell and berate the kids until they were reduced to tears and then acknowledge their failings. Okay. So it's basically like a general getting in your face and screaming at you until you cry and acknowledge I did something wrong. But that's what they would do to their kids. So he, being a sensitive kid, would not 
react well to that and obviously was like screw you guys <coughs> you're all dead to me um so the doors um kind of made their la debut at the whiskey a go-go which we've talked about and that was in 1966 and then they got national recognition when they signed with Electra Records in 1967. And their single Light My Fire spent three weeks at the number one on the billboards list in 1967. And then then he kind of started having some cuckoo problems. Um, he would get loaded. He was, he was said to have, again, like kind of Hendrix, he had this Jekyll Hyde thing. So when he was not drinking, he was... Mr. All-American they would call him like Mr. America was his nickname and then when he was like drinking and doing drugs he was like crazy always naked sometimes violent like he was a totally different person and this has kind of fueled his rebellious image which there's a lot of people out there that don't like the doors but because he was so rebellious and kind of out there you know they were well known because of his antics so when he was at a concert in New Haven, Connecticut, he was arrested on stage um, because he was taking his clothes off and stuff. And then in 1969, in Florida, he was accused of exposing his genitalia in front of the audience. And <laughs> af afterwards, he was convicted of indecent exposure and profanity. And that led many of the promoters to cancel shows for the band. And so this is when he kind of was like fed up with the U.S. because he kept getting arrested, but he kept like taking his pants off, his whole thing. And so it missed all these like troubles he was having, legal troubles. He ended up moving um, to Paris in March uh, 1971 with his girlfriend, Pamela Corson. And um, he started gaining a ton of weight and became like almost unrecognizable. He was depressed and his health really, really declined and, and got really bad. And they rented this apartment, um, and on the morning of July 3rd, 1971, he was found dead in the bathroom of his apartment due to bad heroin. Um, his girlfriend called the authorities. They arrived too late to arrive him, and he was declared dead of heart failure brought on by the drugs. So he also has a rumor, um, a couple rumors, about his death. Uh, one of them that came about later was that he didn't die actually in his bathtub at his house, but that he went to this club in Paris that was close to his home where he met his dealer. And after buying the heroin, he went into the bathroom to go like test it out before he went home and that he actually OD'd in the stall and they found him in the stall. They actually had to kick the door down supposedly. And he was foaming at the mouth and apparently already dead because I guess when you're foaming at that point, you're already dead. Um, but the dealer didn't want to get busted and the venue that he was at didn't want to get in trouble. So apparently the dealer picked him up and then carried him to his apartment down the street and mm. dumped him off in the bathroom, in the bathtub. And apparently his girlfriend wasn't there and she didn't find him till the next morning or something. So that's one rumor going around that you'll see over the internet. Um, I don't know how that's possible where you can carry a dead guy foaming at the mouth <laughs> down the street up yeah. to an apartment of a famous person. Doesn't what's make the, any uh, sense. What's that movie called where the guy's like dead or unconscious and they put the sunglasses on him? We weekend at Bernie's. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so they weekend at Bernie Jim Morrison. <laughs> yeah. And if and if he'd gained a ton of weight, who knows how much he weighed? There's no way you can carry dead weight like that and not somebody yeah. notice it. So I don't believe it. There's also a rumor that he actually didn't die. And that he um, 
is like living under an assumed name somewhere. Okay, well, those are always stupid. <laughs> I mean, why the fuck would you do that, and why would that happen? I don't know. Um, He's alive in Cuba with uh, Tupac and Biggie. <laughs> Wouldn't They're that be all sweet? Chilling. Yeah. So there's a hotel room in um, in L.A. at called the Alta Seneca uh, Alta Seneca Motel. And room 32 is called the lizard or the, called the Morrison room um, again because he he would fight. Remember, we talked about him in the Laurel Canyon episode. They had a house behind the Laurel Canyon market. Yeah. Him and his girlfriend. And they would fight constantly. The girlfriend mm-hmm. he had at the time there. And she would kick him out repeatedly and he would have to leave for a couple of days. And he would always go to these ho- different hotels. So there's a bunch of hotels around L.A. where <laughs> there's like Jim Morrison rooms because he'd get kicked out of his house <laughs> for, <laughs> for being an asshole. <laughs> That's funny. And you'd have to go. So one of the rooms is at the Alta Cienega Motel. It's room 32. And there's a shrine in that room to the Lizard King, which was his nickname, uh, where he stayed when his girlfriend would, you know, kick him out. Um, And there's a bunch of graffiti. Again, I can post another picture of that. Uh, And let's see. I think I wrote down the name. Oh, he's going by. So somebody. So when he left under the assumed name and he's still alive, he apparently lives in Oregon at a, a sanctuary ranch under the name of Bill Lawyer. Mm. Okay. <laughs> so let's, if anybody wants to check him out, go up to Oregon and check out Bill Lawyer. So I'm going to play, or actually, Aiden, you're going to play The Doors' mm. Hello, I Love You. Yeah, I love this Jim song. Morrison. I do too. It's such a cool, like, uh, just the lyric right from the start is cool. Yep. I believe that harmony that they were just singing was a major third interval. Wow. Cool for you. Um, okay, let's move on. He had the apparently he had the what, like the greatest rock and roll scream or something. Oh yeah, I love like some him. of the songs that well, he like yells in. You're like Jesus Christ. I loved um, that poster of him. You know where he looks like Jesus with his shirt off. Like yeah, that one's sick. When I was like 14, I was like, that's my boyfriend. Um, <laughs> and then it was Axl Rose. And then, and then it was Axl Rose. Basically, it was any cracked out person with a shirt off yeah. when I was <laughs> 14. All your boyfriends got fat. How'd that happen? <laughs> nice. <laughs> right? <laughs> Thanks. You're welcome. Well, that's because they never met me and they got fat and depressed. So whatever. Uh, see, it was their fault. It was their fault. Okay. So Mia Zapata, if you ever <laughs> heard of her, she <laughs> was a punk icon she was born August 25th, 1965 in Kentucky. Um, and she went to, in 1989, um, when she was in Ohio at college, she formed a band called The Gits. And uh, where did I put, this is the one where it's kind of all messed up. The That was her band members, and her all met in college and the gets was a name from a um monty python the flying circus television series where they're mm-hmm. like this rat faced get or something there's a quote and then they just shortened it to the gets and they played all over um college and then they all ended up moving out to seattle to do the whole punk scene yep and did uh 
they toured all over the West Coast and they shared bill- billings with like Nirvana, Sublime, Back in Green Day, and they also toured in Europe in 1991. Um, and then the next year they released uh their album frenching the bully which made a pretty good splash like locally and they were finishing their second album um and slated to play their first gig in new york city uh when she was like she was murdered unfortunately and it was an unsolved murder for a long time there's a documentary called the gets about about everything um her dad in this documentary in 2005 um, remembered her as very shy and she said he was the last she was the last person who'd want to call attention to herself and in the band that they formed in 1986 it was uh the mem- other members were matt Dres- dresner dresner did i put that right andy kessler and drummer steve moriarty um and she had broken up with her so they had this house called the rat house that they all kind of stayed at they recorded there and it was kind of like the hub for their friends and stuff and she had recently had broken up with her boyfriend um and was out drinking with her friends at like this local place called the comet tavern and hanging out and this was on july 6 1993 and this was in seattle's capital hill area and her friends recall that she was in great spirit spirits and she had just done a solo show in Los Angeles. So she was kind of thinking about going out on her own. Um, so she was all stoked about that. And as I said, she'd re- she had broken up with her boyfriend. So she reportedly left the bar around midnight to go specifically look for her boyfriend. His name was Robert Jenkins. Um, and she ended up not finding him she went to a friend's apartment that was in the same building that he lived in and she was there until about 2 a.m and that was the last time anybody had seen her alive um it's not known what happened to her uh or where she was for those 80 minutes after she left that building um she may have either walked started walking to a taxi stand or she went to another house to find jenkins they don't know but around 3 20 a.m a street uh uh, a sex worker was walking in the area of central a- area central area which was about two miles from comet the bar she was at and she noticed zapata's body lying on a deserted street a uh, medical team came they couldn't revive her it was unsuccessful she was basically dead at the scene um it was later discovered that she was raped and strangled to death with the cords of her sweatshirt which was a git sweatshirt which is heartbreaking to me um when Zapata didn't show up for the recording session at the studio later that morning, her friends got really concerned and they started calling the hospitals and the police station. And her bandmate Moriarty said, quote, when somebody, somebody had the nerve to call the morgue and the Emmy who was a music fan and had seen the gets play said, it's your singer. I'm sorry. You should get someone to come down here and identify her. And he said, quote, it's a lifelong traumatic moment. So how crazy is that, that the M.E. knew who she was? Yeah. That freaks me out. That's wild. So. That's because edgy punk people work at graveyards. uh, Or coroner's office. Yeah, same thing. Sorry. Um, Yeah, that's probably true. Uh, The case went cold for almost a decade. And uh, the homicide unit was still working on the investigation when a major break occurred in December 2002 
when the Washington State Parole Crime Lab ran a DNA check. Yeah, this part's and crazy. based on a, a preserved swabs of saliva that they had collected from Zapata's body nine years earlier, um, it came back as a match. So they knew she had been raped. I don't think they could. They didn't collect, from what I remember reading, um, semen. Uh, but whatever saliva that she had, I don't know what he was doing, but his was mixed with her, if I'm a weirdo. So his name is um, Jesus Mezquia, I think it is. Mezquia, M-E-Z-Q-U-I-A. And he, at the time, uh, in 2002 when he got busted, he was a fisherman living in Florida. Um, he was Cuban, and he had come to the U.S. in 1980. And... He reportedly had a criminal history that included robbery, kidnapping, and aggravated assault or ag- aggravated battery. Um, his DNA sample was entered into the national database following his conviction for possession of burglary tools. And upon further investigation, uh, it was found out that he was actually living in Seattle around the time of Zapata's murder. So, All right. so fuck that guy. Yeah, fuck that guy. Um, they did a huge um, unplugged performance. Uh, of the Get songs um, to raise money at one point. I know Nirvana um, at one point contributed to the investigation and to like some testing. And, you know, they did a bunch of stuff like that because they were trying to raise money to keep the investigation going because it was cold for so long. Um, So I'm going to play her singing a song called Social Love, which is one of her friends said that it was her unplugged performance that she was really excited about. And that it kind of is the song that kind of embodies who she really was. So I'll play the beginning part of it. So this is um, Mia Zapata singing Social Love. I like to say that all the time, by the way, too. Adrian! Social love. Good stuff. I guess you could she, say that that is uh, that our next singer would have a stylistic difference. From Amy her. Winehouse. Yes. Yeah, she sounds a little Joplin-y to me. It's very, it's very uh, emotion-filled. Yes, I like it. So, um, 
Kurt Cobain is clearly on the 27 club list. He died at 27, suicide by gun and heroin overdose. Um, but we talked about his death extensively in our Kurt Cobain episode. So go back and check that out. He died on what, Aiden? April 5th, 1994. Nice. You always remind me of that. It's like Christmas to you or something. Yep. Okay. So next and final person we're going to cover, and then I'm going to kind of just make a list of people. Um, while my stupid dogs bark in the background. Love them. Stop it, puppies. Yeah, I can hear Herbie. Yep, that's Andy, I think. Oh, really? Yeah, I have the window open. They're outside the window barking at me. So Amy Winehouse uh, was born September 14th, 1983. She was surrounded by jazz growing up. Her uncles were jazz musicians, and her grandmother actually dated a famous jazz saxophonist. Um, She began playing guitar and writing songs at 14. She struggled in school a bit. She kind of was her, you know getting in, you know mouthy and go to the principal's office and stuff and um i think she went to a couple she was raised jewish um not really strict jewish but i think she went to a couple jewish schools and they weren't kind of down with some of her antics so she'd get in trouble a little bit nothing major um so her grandmother encouraged her to enroll in theater school which is where she started really focusing on the work of her vocals and kind of refining that and in 2002 she signed with simon fuller's company and was given 250 pounds a week. I'm not sure what that is in um, dollars, but whatever. A little over, a little under, something like that. Yeah. Um, and that was so she wouldn't get any money from anybody else. It kind of sounded like a shit deal. Um, and she was kept a secret. So she was, they were, they had her doing recordings for other people um, or, or for other groups. And then also writing stuff. Um, and then when people would be like, hey, who's that? She's got a cool voice. They were told, the record execs were told not to tell anybody. So they'd be like, we can't tell you who that is. So it was like this weird hush-hush thing. And finally, she broke out of that situation. Somebody had heard her, and they were really like, I'm going to get you out of this situation. And um, and I wrote that person's name down, and I can't find it. So whatever. But you can look it up. It's on Wikipedia. Um, and she broke out of that situation and started working on her first jazz her first album which was heavily jazz influenced because of her childhood and that came out in 2003 and then she kind of slipped into this whole uh girls groups of the 50s and 60s like the Ronettes who we talked about in our Phil Spector episode um Ronettes lead singer was Ronnie Spector who was Phil Spector's wife who was horribly abused by him but was not the one he murdered and you can go back and listen to that episode but that's the kind of style she embodied. So that's where her her beehive hairdo came from, her cat eyeliner. It's a very kind of 50s, 60s kind of girls group signature look. And soon she got international fame and she kind of took off. And she had very public drug use, alcohol problems. She had an eating disorder. Um, her, her relationships with her on-again, off-again husband, boyfriend were awful and i just remember her always being in the tabloid something crazy was going on she just had a very tumultuous violent relationship with her boyfriend they were obviously always beating each other up and having black eyes and he was in and out of jail and it was just not a good situation she was just in a bad she was just a bad addict and a bad situation um so her husband who who was her on off again boyfriend then eventually her husband his name was blake fielder civil um and he's the one that got her into like heavy drugs which i'll talk about in a second but her song rehab is you know one of the most popular songs which i'm actually going to play in a second and that was in 2007 and it was produced by mark ronson legend 
mm-hmm. who was a legend, and he produced a lot of her stuff. They worked together early on, um, and that's Rehab is probably one of her most famous songs. Um, at the Grammy Awards in 2009, uh, she ended up getting into the Guinness Book of World Records for having the most Grammy Awards won by a British female act that year, which is kind of cool. Mm. And so that's why she was so popular over there because she had kind of busted into our U.S. Grammy situation like a crazy firestorm. Um, By January 2011, Amy was touring a lot and drinking a lot. And during this like January, June um, tour that she had, she was getting booed off stage in a few countries and was visibly tipsy, couldn't remember lyrics. She couldn't remember the song names or the band member names. So when she would like turn around and, and introduce her band, she couldn't remember who they were. And there were rumors swirling that her bodyguards were forcing her to get on stage. Um, and the tour was officially canceled on June 21st. Uh, so she could quote, sort herself out. So at this point she had divorced her husband um, at the urging of her pa- both sets of parents they both of the parents knew that their relationship was extremely toxic and they both parents feared that they were both going to end up dead or they were going to have a suicide pact and commit suicide together mm. so they divorced so at that point of that tour they were not together but she was kind of dating some other guy um but she was tried to get sober a few times um and then she would relapse and so she got her tour canceled and then um, Amy's bodyguard said that he arrived at her residence about three days before her death and felt like she was somewhat intoxicated so she was supposed to be cleaning up but she was clearly drinking again and then he observed her moderately drinking over the next few days Um, but see he said she was laughing and listening to music and watching tv until like two o'clock in the morning Um, on the day of her death and according to her bodyguard at 10 a.m. he observed her lying on her bed and tried unsuccessfully to rouse her Um, but it didn't raise much suspicion from him because she usually slept late after a night out and according to the bodyguard shortly after 3 p.m. he went and checked on her again and observed her lying in the same position as before which started concerning him so he checked for breathing and a pulse and she had none so she was gone so he called the ambulance Um, They arrived at uh, 3.54 p.m. on July 23rd, 2011, and she was pronounced dead at the scene. Um, After her death was announced, the media and camera crews appears and crowd gathered outside of her house to pay their respects, and forensic investigators entered the flat and cordoned off the street, and they recovered two large bottles of vodka from her room. Um, And she... Basically, they had this inquest to confirm her death, and it was um, confirmed that she died of alcohol poisoning. She had like a .416 alcohol content, which is really, really high. Um, Her brother revealed her eating disorder, which I don't think anybody had any doubt that she had an eating disorder. She was very, very thin, which he thinks... Yeah, she she never looked good. No, which he thinks kind of... um, was another reason why you know that kind of caused her death because of all the drinking and the eating disorder she was and she was suffering from the bulimia so bad that she just had a really bad um, alcohol reaction to it which killed her um her husband blake who at the time of her death was serving or her ex-husband two years in jail for stealing money for drugs admitting to introducing amy to crack and heroin um, but also states that he not only he wasn't the only one to blame for her addictions he confirmed to a News of the World 
in 2008, uh, which is a publication in England, that, quote, I introduced her to heroin, crack cocaine, and self-harming, end quote. He also, that same year, sold nudes of her to drug dealers for drugs. Um, they officially divorced in 2009, like I said. And if anybody knows about Bobby Brown and Whitney Houston, it sounds very Bobby Whitney kind of to me. So that was a tragic story about her, um, but also um, that's more recent. So I think probably more people remember that, uh, her, you know, story than some of the past stuff that we talked about. So I'm going to play Rehab by Amy Winehouse, and then I'm going to kind of um, why don't we do this? Why don't I just list off some other people? We weren't, you know, there's a ton of them. They're in the 27 Club, and then I'll play us out with rehab. Okay. So more people in the 27 Club of the people we just mentioned were Alan Blind Owl Wilson. His nickname was Blind Owl. Um, he died uh, September 3rd, 1970. He lived in Topanga Canyon, and he was part of Canned Heat, which is a band we talked about in our Laurel Canyon episode. Um, or actually in our Topanga Canyon episode. So that was one of the famous bands from Topanga Canyon was that can't heat. I don't know if you remember that, but he had a drug OD and died and he was 27. Brian Jones, who was one of the original founders of the Rolling Stones, but he was kicked out in 1969. And weeks after being kicked out, he drowned in his pool and they called it a death by misadventure. <laughs> so I don't know if he was drunk or doing drugs and drowned. Um, Jean-Michael Basquiat died of heroin in 1988. He was a musician. Um, Richie Edwards died in 1995. Uh, he was from Manic Street Preachers. He went missing the day before to leave for a, uh, a UK tour, uh, leave for a UK and an American tour, and he just disappeared. Did they ever so find him? Never found him. What the fuck? What? Yeah. Linda Jones, who was a soul singer, died between sets at the Apollo Theater in Harlem Ooh, in 1972. That's kind of brutal. Yeah, at 27. Yeah. No, that's crazy, too. Um, the uh, Peter Ham from the band Badfinger uh, hung himself in 1975. Uh, Frito Santana, um, of not of the band Santana, I don't He's a musician. He died in 2018 of a fatal seizure. That was one of the more recent ones. Dave Alexander, who was the original bass player for the Stooges, Iggy Pop's band, died in 1975. He had a pulmonary edema from pancreatitis. Uh, Dickie Pride, who uh, was a pop singer, died in 1969 of, of OD. He OD'd on sleeping pills. Uh, Chris Bell of Big Star died in a car crash in 1978. Uh, Rudy Lewis died in 1964. He was the lead singer of the Drifters. He did Under the Boardwalk. You know that song? Dun, 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 under the Boardwalk. Oh, yeah. He was. It was possibly an OD. They did not do an autopsy, but he okay. was also 27. Um, Pete DeFreitas of Echo and the Bunnymen, who was the drummer. He died in a motorcycle crash in 1989. Uh, Ron Pigpen McKiernan, founding member of the Grateful Dead, mm. died in 1973. He had like a gastro gastrointestinal hemorrhage of some kind. It was a congenital thing. Uh, D. Boone of the Minutemen died in 1985. Uh, he was sick and laying down in the back of the van when they were on tour, and the van went off the road, 
and he was ejected from the van and broke his neck. Whoa. <laughs> Damn. Imagine your flu and you just you have like the flu or something. That, sound, that just sounds yeah. horrific to me. Jeez. Fat Pat, who was a rapper from Houston, uh, was murdered in 1998. And Kristen Pfaff, who was the bass player for Hole, mm. died of a heroin overdose in 1994. That's pretty much it. That's weird. The so Courtney Love, one of mm-hmm. so her husband died of heroin in the Twenty Seven Club, and somebody right. in her band died of right. heroin in the Twenty Seven oh, Club. There's numerous people on this list that had heroin. Yeah, heroin killed off n- numerous people on this list, all at Twenty Seven. So that is the Twenty Seven yeah. Club, and eerily, Amy Winehouse had a big fear of joining the Twenty Seven Club. I think because of her lifestyle and because. She was one of the more recent deaths, and you know people were talking about it. Um, there's some famous actors, you know, that died at 27 at the peak of their, you know, careers, which we didn't talk about because we're not an actor, you know, movie podcast. It's a music podcast. But she, one of her biggest fears that she talked about recently, you know, before her death, was that she was going to be a part of the 27 Club, which I think is really crazy. Yeah. So that's that. That was a lot. That's heavy. Don't do drugs. Mm. Don't lay down in a van. Um, and live in a bubble while you're 27. If don't you're sleep. Yes. Don't sleep while you're driving. Um, just rules I can give for rock stars. Don't sleep while you're driving? Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, hey, that's a really good piece of advice. <laughs> Thank you. I'm full of them. Mom advice. No drugs. Don't sleep while you drive. Cool. So I'm going to play you guys out. Amy Winehouse, Rehab. Because literally 90% of this list needed to go to rehab multiple times. Thanks for listening, guys. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Almost LA Podcast. And we will see you next week because now we're going to be coming weekly now that we're kind of over some traveling stuff. Yes. Here we go. All right. Oop, not right thing. Oh, never mind. Just kidding. Mm. Now here we go. Okay, goodbye. Goodbye.